three, two, one, zero, 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 zero. From the studios of WORQ in Wisconsin, this is the Stand Up For The Truth Podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up For The Truth. Welcome to Stand Up For The Truth. I am so glad you joined me today. My name is Mary Danielson, and I will be your host as we take some time to learn from history and continue to analyze and comprehend these amazing times we live in, amazing times we've been allowed to live in, and I promise you a solid hour of things to think about. What's the Lord showing you today? Every one of you will have a different answer to that, and that is the beauty of walking with Jesus. One of my favorite things as a child was to sit down with one of those dot-to-dot, connect-the-dot puzzle books to see how fast I could complete one and get rewarded by seeing the picture at the end. And whenever my mom and I would go to the Red Owl, which was every Saturday, I would head for the puzzle books, and then I'd beg her for 25 cents or so to buy one. Uh, I recall being pretty little when I discovered these, and I never really knew what it was going to depict until I got to the end of it. But I could count so I could connect the dots in order. And I learned pretty quickly that these puzzles may appear to be random, but they are not. If you missed even one number dot, or more than one, the end picture would not be accurate. Now, I find myself still really drawn to these connect the dots as an adult, which involves bringing together information from different places and following where it leads. It involves context. Day-to-day events may appear random to us, but they most certainly are not because we are living in Bible times. The difference is uh, when we get older, we should be able to tell what is depicted before we even get started. And that's actually how it works spiritually. The more we study the scriptures and the things to come, the more we see the picture of God's plan and his character coalesce or come together by the end. We talk a lot about the downgrade of a culture on this uh, podcast, and we remark about how hard it is to keep up with the various levels of evil that we're exposed to every single day. Uh, there is also, at the same time, a falling away from the true faith, which isn't news to a lot of you, so it would seem that most everything around us is degrading rapidly. But we're going to look at the church in the first half of the podcast today. Now, there is a lot of shenaniganery, and yes, that's a word, taking place in various establishments that are churches so-called. And I ask myself often, are these really true churches? Are they just maybe the visible church? I also can call, you can also call them the tares or the weeds within the true church. You may recall that Jesus tells us the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. If you want to familiarize yourself with that passage, it's very timely. Uh, be that as it may, the unchurched call them churches, and so let's just say for today that some have clearly abandoned sound doctrine, or maybe they never taught it at all. And when the unchurched people watch what goes on in some churches, since they don't really know about what a church should like, they just lump all of Christianity together. But the Bible does say there will be a great falling away from the faith and sound doctrine prior to Jesus' return. In Matthew 24 alone, We learn that many will fall away and betray one another, and false prophets will arise. Now, thanks to a well-known evangelical pastor of the late 19th century, there is documentation of the beginnings of the departure from the faith that has sadly grown to maturity today, right alongside blatant false teaching and also the true, narrow-way remnant church. That pastor was Charles Spurgeon. Now, he had a monthly magazine called The Sword and the Trowel. 
In March of 1887, he published, along with another pastor, a series of articles called The Downgrade. He did not know this at the start, but these articles would start a firestorm of controversy that would consume the final five years of his life. Through his series of articles, he sounded the alarm against the invasion of liberalism, we would call that today probably progressivism, intellectualism and modernism into the church. Churches of his day were abandoning central doctrines of the faith, like the deity of Christ, the sufficiency of the word, redemption by the blood of Christ alone, the new birth by the spirit, in favor, in favor of man's wisdom. Uh, at one point in the articles, he even criticizes Darwin. Now, Darwin was a contemporary of his. Can you imagine that? He criticized him for abandoning the faith and leading people astray through what he called the doctrine of evolution. Now, we call it the theory of evolution, but he called it the doctrine, so I'm guessing it was in the churches first. I, I don't know. Maybe some of you know that. As Spurgeon's uh, crusade for truth played itself out, it became very clear to him that, indeed, there was a point at which it was not unloving to disassociate oneself with those who have departed from the basics of the faith. This caused him a lot of personal sorrow because many friends and colleagues turned on him, and he was the only known pastor of the time who took a firm stand against what he saw as a growing tide of apostasy. What was that uh, genuine fatal step in the church as a whole, that point of no return for him? And he explains it so well, so I will just quote him. He says, The first step away is a lack of faith in the divine inspiration of the scriptures, All the while a man bows to the authority of God's word, he will not entertain any sentiment contrary to its teaching. He esteems the holy book concerning all things to be right, and therefore he hates every false way. End of quote. So, just let's forward to 2023 here. A few weeks ago, a church in Oklahoma called Transformation Church caused a stir over their Easter Sunday experience. That's what they called it. Transformation is a mega church led by a pastor named Mike Todd, and this uh, Easter service featured mainstream pop songs by the likes of Beyonce and Keisha, and we addressed it on stand-up that week after Easter, and let's just say it was demonic, it was blasphemous, you can look it up online if you want more info. It's not the first time that this church has been embroiled in controversy and shenanigans. Not long after that, in fact, around the same time, we we heard that ousted uh, and disgraced Pastor Carl Lentz of Hillsong, New York, had been welcomed on board at Transformation. Some believe they are a match made in heaven. I have other ideas on that, particularly after watching the newly released documentary entitled Secrets of Hillsong, directed by a gentleman named Stacy Lee. I don't really know anything about him. But it's very well produced, and it's not a little disturbing. Uh, Clocking in at four hours, and you may be thinking, you'll never get those four hours back, and that's true, but I did learn a lot. Now, I would guess that most Christians have at least heard of Hillsong, if only through their extensive music publishing arm. They've released 36 albums since 1992, and they estimate that its songs are sung by 50 million people in 60 languages. Uh, their most famous song, I would guess, and I'm not really familiar with much of Hillsong's music, but it, the most famous one would be Shout to the Lord. Perhaps you know that one. Their albums, though, were what you might say, and they say this in the documentary, a gateway drug into the world of Hillsong and its Bible college in Australia. That sounds a little toxic to me, but let's find out. Hillsong was started by Brian Houston, an Aussie with an old school Assembly of God 
personal church history. His father, Frank Houston, was an AOG pastor for many years, going back into the 40s. Now, Carl was a student at Hillsong Bible School, along with Brian's brother, Joel, who was their first and main uh, musician and songwriter. Carl caught the eye of Brian Houston, who saw a young and tremendously uh, charismatic and handsome man began grooming him, for lack of a better phrase, to be a pastor and to take Hillsong to downtown New York City. Well, Carl Linz's star began to rise meteorically starting in 2010, the, the same month that Instagram was launched. Interesting. And you could say he was the first true influencer and used it to turn Hillsong, New York, into a church behemoth or monstrosity. A hipster hangout, if you will, and with Lentz getting nicknames such as the Hype Priest and the Hot Priest. The New York Church had seven services per weekend, starting at 11 a.m., because they wanted people to be able to sleep in, and ending with a 9 p.m. service, which was um, packed. We had people waiting around the block uh, to get into that. Uh, celebrity seekers, people looking for they know not what, maybe just a sense of belonging. That's certainly the impression that I got. Every weekend required a thousand unpaid volunteers to pull off what you would probably just call entertainment. A few quick stats. Laura Lentz, Carl's wife, was a co-pastor, as was the wife of Brian Houston. Hillsong grew quickly to 30 campuses worldwide with collective attendance at 150,000 per weekend. Income combined was about 100 million per year, mostly untaxed. Doctrinally, Hillsong is, was a hyper-Pentecostal, word-faith type of church. Tithers could reach certain levels of recognition, uh, VIP level, kingdom builder, etc. But by uh, 2021, Hillsong had all but imploded after 10 years of expansion and lots of failings, legal and moral. Frank Houston, it turns out, was a serial pedophile. He has now uh, passed on. The extent of his crimes may never be known. Brian Houston has been charged with concealing his father's crimes, uh, and the results of that trial will be known later this month. Further investigations are ongoing regarding money laundering and tax evasion. Carl Lentz was fired from the New York Church in 2020 for having multiple affairs, rose quickly and fell quickly. Now, as I'm watching this, I can't turn away, i got to tell you, from the energy, the hype, the rise and fall of it all. Uh, from Carl Lentz, you can see him strutting on stage, crying on cue, and I ask myself, do people like this expect to fall? Do they ever think it's possible? Do they go into this intending to fail somehow? You know, what is the catalyst? I mean, I felt that I could have written the outcome ahead of time. It just sort of seemed inevitable. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at the megachurch uh, mentality, first of all, and I think it's reasonable since the megachurch came on the scene in the early 90s, to maybe ask some questions. Because the assumption has become, well, you know, bigger is better. More money, more people, a bigger building, more activity, entertainment, meeting everyone's deepest need. And all these things combined supposedly equal success from a worldly perspective at least. A megachurch now is said to be more than 2,000 people at services, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And it's not, you know, I'm not looking to pass judgment on anything like that. But prioritizing numbers over spiritual growth and maturity, that's a bad thing. You know, being too big to know your congregants and disciple them, that's a pitfall. Being seeker-sensitive, perhaps, over spirit-led, 
that is not a good thing because then it becomes about what attendees want in a church, not about what they need. There's nothing in Hillsong's story that even suggests they taught from the Bible. So let's just camp there for a couple of minutes. If a church doesn't teach the Bible and they don't feed the sheep and they don't make the word of God a priority on any level, then we have to ask ourselves, what do they do? What is the purpose of gathering together? What does that look like? It kind of looks like Hillsong. There's a pastor there. Okay, so what does he do then? If he's not teaching the word, you know, people say they teach from the Bible. That's not the same as teaching the Bible. So I'll tell you one thing, that now that pastor, and this is where it gets dangerous, is the center of attention, what he has to offer, whether it's how to overcome depression or have your best life now, um, that's now the reason for that church, not the scriptures, not exalting Jesus Christ. So follow, this follow along with this thinking with me. You have a leader of thousands, and people hang on his every word, they look to him for answers to all their problems, and some of those are life and death issues. A church meets a person at where they're probably the lowest point in their life. That's heavy stuff. But the pastor now has become the center of their spiritual lives, uh, if he's not pointing to Christ. He's their rescuer. He's their authority. And I don't think, I don't think humans were ever meant to or should ever be exalted or looked to alone for such weighty things above, the, above other humans. I think it's a trap. Godly leadership in spiritual things, of course. It's biblical, teaching gifts, pastoral care of the flock. Absolutely. Hillsong became a self-generating system of hype and personal glory. And we should ask ourselves then, is that a church? Now you may, again, be a part of a large church. And they're not bad of themselves, of course. But the mega church model is what we're talking about. It, it's probably not ideal to mature the flock. It's probably not ideal to keep leadership accountable. It might have more negative than positive, but again, it's not my goal. To never, uh, that's never a good thing, so don't let that be your takeaway. But look at the methodology and compare it to the scriptures. This movement did not exist before 1992. I've had a lot of great conversations with people about the best size for a church, just random conversations. I love these. There probably isn't an answer for that. It's pretty subjective, but Acts 242 should be the model. And they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. I really believe that's the best church model. And maybe you have other thoughts on that. So now when we refer to Carl Lentz, we get some idea of how and why things went so horribly wrong with the model. I mean, consider Willow Creek, too, in which Bill Hybels found himself on the wrong side of pretty much everything. And there are other stories, of course. More casualties of pastors to say nothing of attendees. Let's think about the people who, who you know, invested themselves. They're left confused and often bitter towards the, even the idea of church, probably because their hope was in people, not in Jesus, when the church imploded. And as I watched the documentary, I kept thinking about Philippians 2.3. And that says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Okay, full stop. There was a lot of selfish ambition and vain conceit and pretty much nothing that resembled humbly considering others as better than themselves. And that's really a good barometer of any church, uh, serving one another in love. I think the church today would do well to refrain from esteeming these leaders so highly. I mean, celebrity pastors, I really have a problem with that whole concept. Um, and yes, they, 
people are just lost and you know they there's no connection anymore to other people so there's that sense of community they get from these places but we're there to worship in spirit and truth we're there to lift high the name of Jesus why do we go to church sometimes we just have to ask ourselves these things you know um and it should never be for personalities one final question in this particular segment we should ask ourselves pastors and worship leaders should a church utilize Hillsong music in their services? I think it should be thought through very carefully. You know, considering what you heard, considering the multiple problems that caused Hillsong to implode in the first place, the doctrine in the songs, or maybe the lack thereof, and where the royalties go for using the songs. So, just a thought there. Um, think about Hillsong and Bethel songs and, uh, um, what you want to present to the people as, as you seek to worship in spirit and in truth. So Carl Lentz at Transformation, what could possibly go wrong? That's my takeaway on the passing of Hillsong. Very interesting that a Spurgeon quote popped up on my Facebook feed first thing this morning, and he said, Better to have been a devil than a preacher playing fast and loose with God's word, and by such means working the ruin of the souls of men. Wow. I mean, what would those pastors, or any pastors even up until uh, our current day, maybe uh, mid-20th century, what would they have thought of Hillsong? I'm interested in what you think. Comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Drop me a line if you wish, and uh, I'm interested. Okay. Um, I think definitions are really good. And I think they provide a firm foundation for when we're studying things like apostasy, things like Hillsong. And I got some time before the break, and I went to gotquestions.org. And I, I do go there from time to time, and I think it's a good, good site. They have an app as well. They're conservative in theology. I've never really seen anything uh, at all uh, doctrinally that I would have an issue with. If you have, let me know. But I think gotquestions.org is excellent. And they have a site, they have a page called, What is Apostasy and How Can I Recognize It? This is really good. The answer, apostasy from the Greek word apostasia means a defiance of an established system or authority, a rebellion, an abandonment or breach of faith. In the first century world, apostasy was a technical term for a political revolt or defection. Just like in the first century, spiritual apostasy threatens the body of Christ today. With respect to apostasy... It's critical that all Christians understand two important things, how to recognize it and apostate teachers and why apostate teaching is so deadly. To fully identify and combat apostasy, Christians should understand its various forms and traits that characterize its doctrines and teachers. As to forms, there are two main types. Number one, a falling away from key and true doctrines of the Bible into heretical teachings that claim to be the real doctrine. Oof. And two, a complete renunciation of the Christian faith, which results in a full abandonment of Christ. A 2010 study by Daniel Dennett and Linda Lascala called Preachers Who Are Not Believers, that's the name of the study, Dennett and Lascala's work chronicles five different preachers who over time were presented with and accepted heretical teachings about Christianity and now have completely fallen away from the faith. These pastors are either pantheists or clandestine atheists. One of the most disturbing truths highlighted in the study is that these preachers maintain their position as pastors of Christian churches with their congregants being unaware of their leader's true spiritual state. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus and a leader in the early church. 
goes on to say, in his New Testament letter, he outlines how to recognize apostasy and strongly urges those in the body to contend earnestly for the faith. That's Jude 1, three. The Greek word translated contend earnestly is a compound verb from which we get the word agonize. It is in the present infinitive form, which means that the struggle will be continuous. In other words, Jude said there will be a constant fight against false teaching, and Christians should take it so seriously that we agonize over the fight in which we are engaged. Moreover, Jude makes it clear that every Christian is called to this fight. That every Christian is called to this fight. Did I say that? Not just church leaders, so it's critical that all believers sharpen their discernment skills so they can recognize and prevent apostasy in their midst. After urging his readers to contend earnestly for the faith, Jude highlights the reason. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 4. In this one verse, he says, Jude provides Christians with three traits of apostates. The teachers. First, Jude says apostasy can be subtle. They crept in. In extra-biblical Greek, the term Jude uses describes the cunning craftiness of a lawyer who through clever arguments infiltrates the minds of courtroom officials and corrupts their thinking. That's a good uh, visual, isn't it? The word literally means slip in sideways, come in stealthily, sneak in. Jude says it's rare that apostasy begins in an overt and easily detectable manner. Well, that's just the nature of deception, right? Describing this aspect of apostasy and its underlying danger, A.W. Tozer wrote, So skilled is error at imitating truth that the two are constantly being mistaken for each other. It takes a sharp eye these days to know which brother is Cain and which is Abel. The Apostle Paul also speaks to the outwardly pleasing behavior of apostates and their teaching. For such men are false false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's our direct threat. That's our direct enemy. Second Corinthians eleven, thirteen, fourteen. In other words, it says, Do not look for apostates to appear bad on the outside or speak dramatic words of heresy at the outset of their teaching. Rather than deny the truth outright, they will twist to fit their agenda. As Pastor R.C. Lenski noted, the worst forms of wickedness consist in perversions of truth. So, sometimes you have a gallon of water and there's a drop of poison in it, and it poisons the whole gallon. And you would not drink that, I guarantee you. Second, Jude describes apostates as ungodly, and as those who use God's grace as a license to commit unrighteous acts. Beginning with ungodly, he describes 18 unflattering traits of apostates. Okay, ready? They are ungodly, morally perverted, denying Christ, ones who defile the flesh, rebellious, people who revile angels, who are ignorant about God, those who proclaim false visions, self-destructive, grumblers, fault-finders, self-satisfying, people who use arrogant words and false flattery, mockers of God, those who cause divisions, worldly-minded, and finally, not surprisingly, devoid of the Spirit, and unsaved. Third, and we'll wrap this up here pretty soon, Jude says, apostates deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, how do they do this? Paul tells us in his letter to Titus, to the pure, all things are pure. But those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. Okay. 
but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed, Titus 1, 15 and 16. Through their unrighteous behavior, the apostates show their true selves. Unlike an apostate, a true believer is someone who has been delivered from sin to righteousness in Christ and refuses to continue in sin. And there is more to this article, but you get the general idea. We are to agonize for the truth. Wow. And the faith delivered to the saints. You know, be an active participant. Um, that's heavy, but uh, we need to pray and seek the Lord on how we can do that. One more article here before we take a break. This is from Terry James. And what would 19th century preachers think of this? Anti-Bible Attack Dogs by Terry James. And he says, At this late hour at the end of the age, it's obvious to anyone who's truly attuned to God's word and is watching, as instructed by the Lord, Christ's call in the rapture must be very near. Proof includes that heaven's enemy has unleashed attack dogs against God's word. This is, I'll warn you ahead of time, this is completely weird. Again, we see the rapidly growing and I believe intrinsically evil AI technology coming to the forefront of society and culture. Those who are determined to insinuate their controlling, bullying influence have chosen to, through AI, directly attack the word of God. The following illustrates that the attack dogs have been unleashed in a major way. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, last week published a rather, he says, milk toast rewrite of the book of Genesis, entitled The Book, PETA's Version of the Creation Story. Told you it was weird. The result, Terry says, is an inherently offensive, occasionally a tad funny, but ultimately rather underwhelming. PETA, or the AI, which I'm convinced probably provided the best bits of this dilapidated drivel, decided to be slavishly derivative, repeating original locations and keeping the rough structure of Genesis while simultaneously scrapping the main theological message of the story and the major plot points that give the inspired word its emotional heft. In this incredibly sanitized version of the Bible, Cain is not a murderer. Nimrod is not a hunter. Of course, it's Peta. Hagar is a chef... A dog takes the place of Isaac on Mount Moriah, which is horribly offensive, and there is no sacrifice. Pharaoh's butler and baker both live, and Pharaoh's dreams involve vegan preaching, not the famine responsible for reuniting Jacob's family. Somewhere between the AI and the woke scolds at PETA, basic details got lost. You think? For instance, Rachel dies in childbirth with Joseph rather than with his younger brother Benjamin. Benjamin miraculously appears as an elder brother to Joseph. Cain, who is obviously still the villain of the story, sacrifices animal flesh to God, while Abel sacrifices plants, which represents a reversal of the biblical story in which Abel sacrifices his prized sheep. Peter may as well have made Abel the villain, because they scrapped the murder anyway. Most of the main characters who have rather tremendous flaws in the original version of Genesis are all morally spotless priests of the vegan religion. Preaching the virtues of soy and almond milk. Oh my gosh, you can't make this stuff up. Seriously. They go from place to place, spreading the gospel of treating animals like people, and occasionally the animals speak on their own accord. At one point, camels decide amongst themselves to teach the uneducated humans, but then decide to travel with them instead. Joseph's brothers still decide to kidnap and sell their brother out of jealousy, but they wouldn't dare harm a goat to dip his multicolored coat in goat's blood, but they use beet juice. Yes, they contemplate murdering their own brother, 
but God forbid they touch an animal. It seems that whoever had Peter wrote Genesis, rewrote Genesis, lost interest in the first few, after the first few chapters, letting AI do the rest. Some would view this as all drivel. As the writer puts this, just tongue-in-cheek fun-poking. But the God whose son paid the price for the sin of the world in the most horrific, humiliating way imaginable, I must believe, finds little humor here. Neither is the serpent's intention tongue-in-cheek. He wants to steal truth from and destroy every human being. He fully intends to do so, in part, by deceiving humans into thinking that neither he nor God even exists, destroying the veracity of God's word in one of the chief ways he is trying to achieve his plan of destroying the human race. Satan and all of hell's attack dogs will never destroy the word of God. We have our Lord's promise. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. I'd like to see Peter rewrite Revelation while it's going on. Once you destroy Genesis, which of course they don't take seriously anyway, you've destroyed the entire Bible. You've destroyed Revelation. If Genesis isn't true, nothing is true. And so we have to really be careful of progressive teachers, progressive pastors who think that it's okay to do damage to the scripture. And of course, the PETA story is in its borders on absurd and ridiculous. But nevertheless, is it that much more absurd and ridiculous over what some of the other progressive and liberal teachers teach regarding, um, well, Genesis or anything or denying Christ or denying the cross or denying whatever it is they do. Hate Israel. So many, so many options there. So we're going to end the segment with that story and we're going to come back and talk about some secular history, a very significant secular history in part two of today's podcast, Stand Up for the Truth. Your prayers and ongoing financial support keep our truth-at-any-cost mission strong. StandUpForTheTruth.com Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth today. My name is Mary Danielson, and in the first half, we dove into the Hillsong documentary that came out about 10 days ago. Four parts, an hour each, and yes, it took that long to tell their story. Again, comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com would be um, welcome on anything at all today in the podcast. And as I said earlier, I like to use the context of history to understand the times. And that's because I perceive that we are nearing the end of the typical flow of history. Nothing anymore resembles normal life, right? And our collective timeline got skewed not too long ago as we seem to be marching headlong into the time that the Bible describes as a time unlike the world has ever seen from the beginning to the end. That's a heavy statement. I think we can all agree that something is truly off. And I believe also that we are seeing God's hand in the affairs of men. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's look at some secular history. Several years ago, as I watched our culture go from a post-war uh, family and morality-based society to a self-oriented, sin-flaunting, relativistic, collectivist society, I decided to dig around and figure out how we got here. I asked myself that a lot. I also don't believe in random events dragging us all through time, and this is why we need context. Sometime back, I saw a video of Ray Comfort interviewing young people on the street. And the question was, who is Adolf Hitler? And you can imagine. 
The majority of the youth had no idea, as if his presence in history had nothing to do with them on any level or any scale. And this was shocking when you consider, number one, the gravity of his crimes on an international historical level, and number two, the fact that there are still some alive, few, whose lives were profoundly affected by his presence in history, not to mention the millions of those who went into eternity by his presence in history. I have questions based on Ray Comfort's questions. Does anti-Semitism have historical context? Context. Biblical context. Does the existence of Israel have historical context? Biblical context. Does World War I have anything to do with Daniel II, and what does Mormonism, UFOs, and Sigmund Freud have in common? Well, we're going to find out. There have been momentous changes in the last century that have brought us to a point of no return in our culture that can only be rectified by heavenly intervention, and I bet that you will agree with that. I call this prevailing mood the spirit of the age. The German word for it is zeitgeist. And interestingly enough, I have heard that word three times in the last two weeks here when I'm in the building, and that is a little bit weird to me. So I decided to go with that. Scripture indicates that we can expect a specific time, again, like I said, unlike any other time man has ever known, in which the sin of mankind will become full and ripe for judgment. The book of 2 Timothy 3 tells us to expect perilous times, and then it proceeds to give us a laundry list of behaviors and attitudes of heart that will define these times, and hopefully these are familiar scriptures to you today. Lovers of self, lovers of money, disobedient, ungrateful, lacking self-control, haters of good, unholy, unloving, haters of God. These things and more define our perilous times. Perilous means, you know, difficult to bear. That's actually what that means there. From the first time I read these verses, you know what struck me? I found it interesting that what makes the times perilous is the condition of the human heart, not the events. All right? As one might think of perilous or difficult. We focus on the event. And people, um, you know, that may seem obvious, but it's good to remember, the human heart is the problem. And people cope differently with what they think is going to solve every ailment of society. Everyone, the human race has built in preservation, self-preservation. In Job it says, all that a man has, he will give for his life. So people who are looking to preserve things, they may jump in with an activist attitude and they, they will try and save the world one cause at a time, right? Some think the, some think the world will end from environmental disaster. So they pour all their energy into saving the oceans and the ozone and trying to convince us it's too hot out. Some people think the problem is overpopulation, so now they will pour themselves into saving the world through abortion or eugenics. Still others others think it's a war that will eliminate the human race, and they would actively oppose any military action, no matter how necessary or how evil the enemy is. Maybe the problem's intolerance. Okay, so let's legislate thoughts and speech and force everyone to play nice together in the global neighborhood. And on and on it goes as we see systems of control go completely out of control. We know without a doubt that the problem is spiritual. Timothy tells us that. And as often the case with a pitiful spiritual condition, this did not happen overnight. The seeds of change that are bearing fruit in our days were planted a long time ago. Uh, as Spurgeon found out, and I'm going to show you that the chickens have come home to roost in these last days. It's possible that the last days started over a 100 years ago. So then we have to ask, how late is it? If you were a citizen of my upper Midwest town, somewhere around oh, 1850 or so when it was brand new, 
you would have lived a pretty simple life. You would not have had a phone, a bathroom, a radio or TV, largely due to the fact that there was no electricity or running water. Your contact with the outside world would have been very limited. Even the weekly paper would have had only local news. You wouldn't have really known anything much about the world. Or maybe you didn't even know your next-door neighbor. Who knows? You would not have seen a McDonald's, a Walgreens, a Walmart, or a gas station for many decades to come. That alone, sad to say, would have probably made life pretty intolerable for us in the West. And it's possible you wouldn't even have had um, a local doctor. And a hospital would have been even rarer, so your life expectancy was probably kind of sketchy. But did you also know that in our humble town in 1850, you would never have had a Jehovah's Witness knock at your door? Nor would you have likely seen a pair of Mormons ride down Main Street, USA, in the Midwest on a bicycle. Your children would not have been seduced by the lies of Darwinism in a school system, and there was no publicly funded school system yet. And Charles Darwin at that point had not yet been seduced by the spirit of his own age. Your sons would not have been diagnosed with ADHD. It did not exist, let alone be persuaded to change their gender. Your daughters would not have been deceived by the agenda of Planned Parenthood. There was no pornography industry, no R-rated music or movies, no movies, period. No deviant alternative lifestyle. Sin was sin and shame was shame. Public professions of faith were not discouraged and, you know, churches were revered centers of weekly life, of family life. Now, while there have always been false teachers in cultic movements, as I look into this, it seems for all the world that Satan saved a particularly wicked bag of tricks for these latter times. And I have a brief list where you're going to find the beginnings of most of the major humanistic movements of today that distract and deceive and draw them away from the truth, from cults to psychology, from ecumenism to evolution. It's all there. And I will lay odds that everyone you share your faith with now has been conditioned by one or more of these religions or philosophies. And so these things impact all of us, no matter what our spiritual state, and really no matter what the year. Let me just read a few of these. This is very interesting, um, how the world changed so radically around then. 1851, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton pair up to form the beginnings of the women's movement. 1859, Darwin's Origin of the Species is published. 1860, New Thought Movement, begun by Phineas Quimby. There's a name for you. He was the father of positive thinking, word-faith teachings adopted by Norman Vincent Peale, Kenneth Copeland, etc. 1870, the dogma of papal infallibility is instituted. 1875, Mary Baker Eddy publishes the first Christian science texts. 1879, Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, is born. 1879, also Jehovah Witness organization founded by Charles Taze Russell. 1882, the first New Age Bible is published. 1893, the first Parliament of World Religions held in Chicago. 1894, the first Women's Bible is published. That's much earlier than I would have expected. 1895, Sigmund Freud begins his work in the field of psychoanalysis. 1897, John Dewey, father of public education, publishes The School and Society. Also, you'll notice sometimes I look at these big old school buildings, these, these stone buildings, that's around the time a lot of them were built. If they're still standing in your in your town, make note of when they were built, because um, that's when John Dewey uh, published his work. 1912, Annie Besant founds the magazine Herald of the Star to promote the coming world teacher. Fatima Visions of Mary, also in 1912. 1917, Lenin facilitates the communist revolution. 1919, 
Sri Yogendra introduces yoga to the West. 1923, American Astrological Society. 1939, Gerald Gardner initiates modern neo-pagan Wicca movement. 1945, birth of the UN. There's your global government. 1947, age of the UFO begins with supposed sightings in Washington State. And 1955, Church of Scientology opens its doors. And you know that's not a complete list, but you get the general idea. A couple of add-ons that I think are significant. 1920s, Thomas Watson founds IBM and punch card technology, which was used to round up the Jews in the 1930s. That was actually the beginning of the computer age. 1958, the microchip invented. And, of course, that's, this, like I said, this is the tip of that huge iceberg. What about the two world wars? I did not mention them for a reason. The bloodiest century in all of history, the 20th century, was... The geopolitical changes from those two events alone are staggering. Let's just look at this for a minute. This is very interesting. The Bible tells us there's going to be a revived Roman Empire in the last days, uh, Daniel 2. These two wars dismantled and reconfigured what was left of the influence of old Rome on the world, and out of that rose a reformulated European powerhouse and a Jewish homeland as prophesied in the scriptures. Again, these are, moment, these are momentous events. In other words, we entered World War I with monarchies, Ottomans, and Persians, and we came out on the other side with Turks, Iranians, and modern Israel. Ottomans, Persians, and Turks, oh my. 101 years ago, okay, monarchies, European dynasties, czars and kaisers ruled Europe. You know, uh, czars and kaisers, that's the same word as Caesar. There was no such thing then as a nation called Iraq, no such nation as Iran, which means Aryan. It was named by the Germans. Funny how Iran is Israel's number one nemesis these days. 101 years ago, there was no modern Israel. But then, okay, this is a pivot point. June 28, 1914, a 19-year-old Serbian terrorist, he was with the Black Hand terrorist group, emerged from a restaurant in Sarajevo and shot at point-blank range the heir to the throne of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire who was visiting the area, and his driver took a wrong turn, a turn that changed the world. The royal's name was Archduke Ferdinand, and maybe you know that story from your high school history if you were lucky to get actual high school history. This young man, he didn't like the way the Habsburgs were governing the Serbs, Croatians, Bosnians, and Czechs at the time. You know, that was always been a hot spot there. But because of that one act of violence, all the royal houses of Europe were engulfed in hostilities. Germany, Russia, who was tired of those czars, and all of Europe, they were itching for a fight. And later that summer, on the 9th of Av, on the Jewish calendar, look that up, there's a rabbit trail for you, Germany fired the first shots of World War I. Now consider a simple game of dominoes here. Every European monarchy was fallen by 1918. The fall of the monarchies led to the rise of dictators such as Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini to fill the power void. The fall of the Tsars led to the Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of communism, which is threatening our very world today in the West. And actually everywhere. We're headed for a global government. World War II, that was simply unfinished business from World War I. Now, Germany was blamed for World War I, so they licked their wounds by building up their military and seeking more land. Hitler simply appealed to their nationalist bent by promising to make Germany a great power to rival the British Empire, which was the largest empire in scale alone in history. That's a whole other rabbit trail, too. And we know how this all came out. But God meant for a Jewish homeland. 
to start the clock in earnest on the last days. Within 10 days, note this, within 10 days of Israel becoming a nation in 1948, the modern EU held its first parliament to establish the European common market. So we have God's plan for both Jew and Gentile germinating on the world scene in 1948. Are we seeing God's hand in the affairs of men? Absolutely. God's hand has always been in the affairs of men, but when you think of the changes, you know, I I call it the age of acceleration. That's what we're in here. Nothing is disconnected. Nothing is disjointed. And if the last hundred years are not disjointed, neither is today. The dots all connect to bring a picture of what needed to happen to get here in 2023. Again, what a great time to be alive. So I hope all this dot connecting wasn't too horribly painful, but it's a lot of fun. The times they are changing, they've been changing for 150 years, and we are barreling headlong into that time unlike any other. Again, the age of acceleration, the spirit of the age, all coming together. There's a verse in Luke 21. It says, uh, little verse, when you see these things begin to happen. And in Luke 21, Jesus is talking about nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, pestilences. He talks about the fig tree, signs from heaven, um, persecution, all kinds of things. And I remember reading that verse a very long time ago and, oh, begin to happen. Begin. Oh, it's beginning. Oh, of course. It's been beginning, from the beginning. But sometimes I lightheartedly say to myself, do I, do I not understand that word begin? <laughs> well, Damon Duck uh, has an article. He is with Prophecy Plus Ministries, and this came out on May 27th. It's kind of a long article, but I'm, I'm going to hopefully condense it for you. It's like 13 pages. We're not going to do anything close to that. But he talks about begin to come to pass, uh, God's time frame. And he starts out with, the book of Revelation is, and he has some points here. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a list of things to show God's servants. A list of things that must happen. A list of things that must happen shortly in God's timing, or quickly, once it gets going. A list of things that an angel showed to John. Revelation is the word of God. It is the testimony of Jesus. That's how he starts it out. And then he says, there are five major signs in Revelation 13. So he's going with, Revelation 13 here, he said that must come to pass during the tribulation. So then we can presume that it is forming ahead of time. Okay. Number one, a global power must come into being. And then he talks about verse 7. Power was given to him, Antichrist, over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And he says an elected, an unelected person must be given power over all nations. This is the new world order, the great reset, the coming world government. Number two, a global false religion must come into being. And he says in verse 8, All that dwell on the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Every lost person must worship the Antichrist. So there are some pretty firm musts in here. Also, there must be global population reduction. Verse 15, And he gave the false prophet um, he and he, the false prophet, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, a statue of some sort of the Antichrist, and the image would speak and cause that as many that would not worship the image to be killed. So, you know, we've been speculating on that for a long time. An AI, you know, computerized statue or whatever. 
that will reduce the population of the earth by ordering the death of all that refuse to obey their government and worship an idol. Four, there must be a global marking system um, that it identifies uh, supporters of the world government. This is probably where, you know, face scans, hand scans, again, we've been thinking about this for a very long time, and we'll see what, what it looks like. He says, the desire for a mark to identify everyone that has been vaccinated? I don't know. There's also something out there, a company called SoMark, and it's a tattoo ink. And it can be invisible, and it goes on the hand or forehead, on or in, on or in. Ah, do your homework on that. On the hand or forehead, and it can be invisible. I mean, if you're a a celeb in Hollywood, and you have that mark on your forehead, mm, it can be invisible. That actually exists. Five, there must be a global economic system. Verse 17 says that no man may buy or sell except he has the mark. All must take the mark, or they cannot buy or sell. I mean, that's that's clear. Everyone must be required to support the government if they want to buy and sell. And then I think we're looking at digital currency sooner rather than later. I don't know. Then he digresses a little bit here, Terry James does, and he says, in Daniel chapter 4, we read that God caused Nebuchadnezzar to lose his mind. <laughs> where did you thinking, where did that come from? Just wait for it. His hair grew like feathers, his nails grew like claws, he crawled around in a pasture like an animal on all fours, he grazed grass like an animal, his body stayed wet from the dew, and this lasted for seven years. Why? So the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomever he will and setteth up over the basest of men. Terry says, so the living will know what? Well, that God is in control, that God raises up leaders, that God bring down, brings down leaders and puts the leader he wants in charge, and he puts bad leaders in charge. Amen to that, right? So in response to a question about his second coming at the end of the age, Jesus said, when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads. Your redemption draws nigh. I don't know what begin means necessarily. That's above my pay grade. But um, we look up anyway, right? Terry says, as the end of the age nears, there will be a generation that can see the signs beginning to come to pass. Matthew 24, 32, 33. Our generation is seeing the five major signs that I just read you in 13 beginning to come to pass. So, so we did some groundwork and we thought, well, it took a while for a lot of things to fall into place for Israel to be a nation. It took a while for all kinds of things to fall into place. So there's an infrastructure for all these things to take place that has been building. It's fascinating, again, to see God's hand in the affairs of men. And, and there, there are a lot more events that seem to be leading up to the tribulation. But, you know... I think we can see those. You can certainly do your homework. A um, couple more headlines, just while we have a little time here. And switching gears. Persecution. Because we see churches like Hillsong and all that, where, you know, life in the West is good. There's a lot of money flowing. There's a lot of privilege. North Korea infant jailed for life after parents found with Bible, according to a recent report. Maybe you heard this. Christians in North Korea are considered the lowest in society, the report noted. A two-year-old, along with his entire family, were sentenced to political life imprisonment after North Korean officials found a Bible in their possession. The U.S. State Department's International Religious Freedom Report found, documenting the regime's crackdown on people having religious beliefs. The report provided estimated figures on religious persecution, stating that approximately 70,000 Christians, 70,000 Christians, are imprisoned in North Korea. 
The right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion in Korea also continues to be denied, with no alternative belief system tolerated by the authorities. Um, Antonio Guterres, the United Nations Secretary General, said in a report outlining liberty, religious atrocities that have occurred in North Korea in past years. So that's something to pray about. Um, there are also underground churches, secret churches there, but um, I'm sure you won't hear about those. So, and, you know, the fact that this child and parents were given life sentences in prison camps, and the conditions in these prison camps are horrific. Um, severe, extreme malnutrition, forced feeding of contaminated food, abuse, execution. So pray for them. Also, Canadian police arrest teen handing out Bibles during altercation with trans activists. <laughs> Josh Alexander, and we've talked about him before. Canadian police arrested a teenage conservative activist for handing out Bibles after a violent altercation broke out between his Save Canada group and trans activist counter-protesters. Josh Alexander, 16, was handcuffed for allegedly causing a disturbance and provoking violence because he approached the activists during an international walkout event supported by the conservative Christian group Liberty Coalition Canada. He passed out Bibles on a public sidewalk in Calgary and interacted with a crowd of people holding transgender flags and carrying LGBT-themed signs. <laughs> so he, uh, I think he was involved in something else. Uh, he was handcuffed and dragged away on another event. Anyway, <laughs> last night at church we sang a hymn, and it was so sweet and I said afterwards I wish I could crawl inside this hymn and just hang for a while I'm going to read this in a couple minutes that I have left abide with me fast falls the eventide the darkness deepens Lord with me abide when other helpers fail and comforts flee help of the helpless abide with me thou on my head in early youth did smile and though rebellious and perverse meanwhile thou hast not left me though I oft left thee on to the close, Lord, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who, like thyself, my guide and stay can be? Through cloud and sunshine, abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight. Tears lose their bitterness. Where is thy sting, death? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still, abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, Lord, abide with me. Isn't that the sweetest? That can certainly be our prayer today. As we close up this podcast, uh, it's just been a real joy to be with you today. We have some things upcoming. Friday, Terry Reynolds, brand new guest tomorrow. Looking forward to that. He's a pastor. Monday, Dave Wager. Tuesday, J.B. Hickson. Wednesday, James Walker. That's a replay. Thursday, Russ Miller. And I'll be back with you on Friday for some more headlines. Questions, comments. Comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. My name is Mary Danielson. Keep speaking the truth about things that matter.